This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. We welcome Richard Ranajak to the program. How are you, Richard? Good. Good to talk with you, Bob. Well, good to talk with you again. Richard Ranajak, we, we became acquainted uh, because of my newspaper column. He called me to suggest a newspaper column on the subject of some tragedies in the area. We'll get to his idea on that in a bit. But as I talked to him, I thought he had an interesting life. And this might be a whole new theme or a new uh, kind of interview here on the Historian's Podcast. I think you could possibly say it's it's oral history. Uh, people uh, telling about their uh, experiences uh, living in upstate New York, for example, which is uh, Richard's case. Richard Ratajak grew up on Reed Hill in Amsterdam, New York. And my family lived in that neighborhood. And, and Richard, you were our paper boy. Right. I can honestly say that you are on my paper route because you you and your family, Bob, lived on Pulaski Street in Amsterdam. And I peddled the Amsterdam Evening Recorder to every home on Pulaski Street. Definitely uh, the Cudmores were on my paper route. I hope we tipped you. Can I tell uh, a side story here? Sure. At the time, the uh, Amsterdam Evening Recorder was six cents a copy, and so it ran six days a week. And when I collected on Saturday morning, uh, that was 24 cents, and people (laughs) would give you a quarter and then put out their hand for the penny. (laughs) Oh, yes. Well, that's, and, but you you delivered papers a good long time, or it was just yeah, a couple of years while I was in high school, right? It was a good source of income. Yeah, it was uh-huh. nice to uh, meet with the people and greet them and and bring them the evening paper. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an evening paper. In fact, it's back to being an evening paper, I believe. It was for morning paper for a while, but I digress. Oh, where did oh, I lived on Pulaski Street with my family? Uh, where did you live? We lived on Slater Street, which was uh, like two blocks down. Yep, I remember Sl- off of Hibbert Street. Yes, uh, Slater's off of uh, of Hibbert. Uh, what what did your my father? Uh, maybe we'll share information. My father was a carpet weaver. My mother had various jobs, but uh, she worked at a, a store in downtown, and then ultimately as a clerk at uh, Mohawk Carpet. What did uh, your folks do? Okay, my father was a welder at the General Electric plant. And my mother was a weaver at uh, Mohawk Carpet Mills in the Rockton Mill. Really? Well, they, that's very unusual because there weren't that many women weavers, or, or were there? Right. My, my mom prided herself. She says, you know, I have fast hands. And uh, she did some very fine weaving for them, such as making samples that were then sent to the Merchandise Mart in Chicago. So that, that was an honor on her behalf. Yeah, I was. What was your mother's name? Josephine. Joseph uh, Josephine Radijak. Right. Isn't that something? Because again, that's come up as a question sometimes when I give a talk, because my last book focuses on the carpet mills. That there there were a lot of women who worked in the mills, but in in general, uh, they worked as creelers, which had them tying the knots for the looms. 
but she was actually a weaver. That's great. And sounds like she wove specialty products and things. Right, right. All right. Well, you grew up on Reed Hill in Amsterdam, and you went to the local schools. Did you, and I do know you're a Roman Catholic. Did you go to the parochial school or the public school? I went to St. Stanislaus School right there on Cornell Street, right? I was an altar boy at St. Stanislaus Church, and uh, I went to the Wilbur H. Lynch Senior High School, graduated in 1949, mm-hmm. and I then went to work for the Western Union Telegraph Company. People were still selling, sending telegrams, and we had uh, a big account with the Mohawk carpet mills along with the big old Sanford carpet mill. And the, the other uh, attraction was that the Amsterdam Ball Club, the Rugmakers, were still playing ball, and Bruce Henry would come every morning after uh, the night game and give us the scores, which we would then wire to the wire services. Oh, I'm sorry. Who was it that gave you the score? Bruce Henry. He was the uh, uh, general manager, and he advanced mm-hmm. then to become the uh, general manager for the Yankees in New York. Really? He became manager for the New York Yankees? Right, right. Not, oh. not, not the field manager, but the business manager. Oh, business manager. All right, right. very good. So <clears throat> uh, you went to the... A Catholic uh, elementary school or in, in middle school, I guess you'd say, and then the public high school, and then working for Western uh, Union. Um, and you also did military service, did you not? Right. I, I, I joined the Army in 1952, took my basic training mm-hmm. at Fort Dix, New Jersey. And mm-hmm. then in 1953, I, I, went, I was sent to Korea. And uh, I landed in Korea on the 27th of January, 1953. I was assigned to the 27th Regiment of the 25th Division. On the 27th of July, 1953, the truce was signed. Ah, I I was wondering, that date had escaped. So it was in July of 53 that the the armistice or the truce was signed. Right, and we were online then, and uh, the artillery's where we were still exchanging artillery fire until 2,200 hours, and it all ceased. There was no celebration. We were told that we don't know how long this truce will last. Well, it's still in effect as we speak. Yes. So did you, I mean, you did see combat that yes, for those yes. months. Yes. Uh, I, I, uh, my original assignment was as a radio operator, and then I, uh, the chaplain asked me if I would be his driver and assistant, which I was. And that's when I saw a lot of action. We would go up to the uh, outpost and go to the aid stations when they brought in the casualties. And so uh, it was a different, uh, different type of warfare. It was more night fighting than day, day fighting, but it was still a combat zone. Mm. Now, when you came back from the war and from your military service, uh, well, let me state it because you have told me this already, you became a priest. Um, how did that develop? Well, working for the chaplain certainly uh, uh, gave me an insight into uh, uh, into the ministry. And uh, serving in a combat zone helps you realize the... Uh, there's something beyond this life. And so and I was very impressed by the two chaplains, Father Raymond Goff and Father Thomas Dorsey, 
how well they related to the men in, in the way, especially the, the ones who were, were wounded and were dying. And I thought, gee, these, these men are just superior in, in what they do. And I kind of wanted to emulate them. And so I uh, put my application in and uh, joined the seminary, took my uh, undergraduate work at the Maryknoll Seminary outside of Chicago and my graduate work at the St. Maurer Seminary in South Union, Kentucky. And in May 1964, I was ordained a Catholic priest for the Diocese of Albany. Mm. Um, now, had that occurred to you when you were a child, let's say at St. Stan's, being an alder boy and so forth? I think, sure, I think just about every uh, uh, youngster going to St. Stan's <laughs> uh, was uh, told that... Uh, the Lord is calling you, and uh, you're to respond to that call. Mm-hmm. Um, so you became a priest, in, or you were ordained in 1964, and the story that we're getting getting at with Richard Radijak, who's a native of uh, Amsterdam, doesn't live in Amsterdam now, we'll get to that when it, uh, <laughs> the time comes in the, in the story, but at some point... You spend time at the Shrine of the North American Martyrs, uh, frequently called the Orysville Shrine in Orysville, New York, which is uh, really just west of uh, Amsterdam. Uh, uh, yeah, a little hamlet, yeah, seven miles west of Amsterdam. Right, in my studies, we had the, the summers off, and uh, in the 1950s, I commuted to, to Orysville, and then in the 1960s, I was at the Tertian Chip House. And uh, that was a terrific experience, being with these uh, men who just about every one of them had a doctorate degree, and it was nice to sit down with them, have a couple of beers, and brain-pick them on their field. The 50s and 60s were were very good to the Orangeville Shrine. It was very popular. People came in buses. Priests came for uh, spiritual uh, nourishment. They had retreats at the Tertianship House. And uh, it, it was a very busy time. I was sacristan, which meant I was in charge of the uh, sanctuary uh, in the Colosseum. And we would have sometimes up to a dozen dozen masses in the morning as priests came to offer mass to bring pilgrims. And uh, Orisville has a, has a real draw. It, it's a very peaceful place, considering that three... Jesuit, uh, Jesuit Father Isaac Jogues and two Jesuit brothers, Rene Gopil and John Lalonde, were martyred there. And uh, uh, the Mohawks were known to be somewhat of a savage tribe. And uh, from those days to the peaceful setting, Orisville really uh, has that beautiful serene, serenity about it. Mm. And so as sacristan, I would in charge of the sanctuary and make sure the altar was all prepared, the linens were clean, that vestments and were ready for the priest to offer mass. The, the chalice, patent, wine, water were all ready, uh, hosts for communion, and that the pilgrims were all taken care of if they needed prayer books, anything of that sort. We would uh, we would have all that ready. Mm-hmm. And it was while you were at Orysville that this thought occurred to you about uh, tragedies that, that took place all around Orysville. 
uh, you know, recent uh, you know tragedies, not back in the. Well, uh, it was yeah. Well, actually, what what prompted this, Bob, was when that unfortunate tragedy that occurred with that uh, uh, limousine that uh, there were twenty two souls that were lost, and uh, then I, I recalled the situation where the throughway bridge collapsed and through through a bridge collapsed there were 10 fatalities in that accident that that was less than a half mile from from the shrine you could see it then i in my own mind i i drew kind of a, a radius of 25 miles using the coliseum kind of as a hub and it was amazing the number of tragedies that occurred within that circle i mean going back some uh, going way back to like 1940, when that there was that train derailment in Little Falls, where there were 20 souls that were lost and several several people injured, and then there was a tragedy of people coming to the shrine for Sunday mass in Rotterdam, and uh, well, uh, then if you look at Amsterdam, that tragedy of the Mexican workers mm-hmm. uh, that were. That were uh, there were eleven of them that perished in that uh, train accident, and there were so many individual ones. It just seemed that for that area to have so many of these uh, things that so many tragic events. Hmm. I I wonder though if you drew a twenty-five mile circle around practically any point, uh, you know, in America or wherever that you'd find a, a similar story. Probably yes, perhaps. Yeah. Um, so that's what you had, you had uh, called me about. Um, but one other point, and then maybe we'll take our, our break. You said you li- lived, I, I forget what phrase you used to describe the building, but I believe the building is the one that the Jesuits have sold to uh, the Buddhists, the World Peace and Health Organization, I believe it is. is that it, it looks like sort of a college dormitory or something. Okay, the building itself, it was called the Tertianship House, and it uh, was given that name because the Jesuit fathers, their training, uh, duration of their training for the priesthood was 15 years. Now, the Jesuits were founded by St. Ignatius of Loyola, who was a soldier, and he certainly wanted to make sure that they had uh, their basic training in theology before they set out to convert the world. And uh, so they had a three-year novitiate. The most religious orders, and the Jesuits are a religious order, they take the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. And in addition, another vow of, of obedience to the Holy Father. So their novitiate, most of the novitiates are one year, and their novitiate was three years. They spent the first two, okay, in preparation, and then they did their studies in philosophy and theology. And in their 15th year, that would be the third year of novitiate, in the eastern province, they spent at Orisville. And it was, as I said before, a pleasure to be with them because many of them had doctorate degrees. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh it was it was fun to be with them and uh, in the evening and then to brain pick them and uh, in addition now that I was there with my dad in, in the 1940s when 
the cornerstone was laid for that building. It's, a, it's in the shape of a cross, okay? And uh, the, uh, they had a number of priests who resided there who uh, were assigned to the shrine, and uh, then the others were the, the Tertians who were there for a year. Mm-hmm. Okay, and also the Jesuit fathers conducted retreats for lay people as well as for priests. During the summer, we had a number, a number of priests. In fact, one of the years where I didn't work on the shrine grounds, I worked at the retreat house. Mm. But you were not a Jesuit priest. No, no, no I was not. <clears throat> okay. I, I kidded in that uh, their their initials after their name they put S J Society of Jesus, and I said I can put S J Summertime Jesuit. <laughs> we're talking with Richard Radijak about his uh, interesting life. Amsterdam native becomes a priest. We're not done yet. We'll be back with uh, Richard after I just mention about our fundraising campaign. The Historian's podcast depends on this uh, GoFundMe campaign to stay in operation for uh, the year and let's hope for some more years. Uh, You can donate uh, online at GoFundMe.com forward slash 2019 The Historians. If you'd rather not uh, donate using your credit card online, you can uh, send us a check. Make the check out to me, Bob Cudmore, and send to Bob Cudmore at 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. Richard Radijak uh, joins us. He was uh, the Cudmore paper boy uh, back in the uh, 1940s, uh, served in the Korean War, uh, became a priest, uh, spent quite a bit of time at uh, the Orisville Shrine, after being or and he was ordained a priest in 1964. But let me get to the point I'm trying to drive at now. You left the priesthood in uh, 1973. Why was that? In 1974, uh, uh, right? Yes, uh, and I I had to write to the uh, Holy Father. It was then uh, uh, Pope Paul VI, and uh, asked for a dis- dispensation. I uh, indicated to him that I had met this uh, lovely lady, named her Shirley, and uh, I'd like to be, uh, I'd like to marry her, but I'd also like to serve as a priest. But since the rules say that you're either uh, celibate and a priest, or if you're married, you're, you can no longer function as a priest. They don't take your ordination away, but so uh, he uh, dispensed me, and so Shirley and I were married uh, in uh, Scotia, in 1964, and, and uh, in fact, our anniversary was just uh, the other day on uh, March 16th. Must have been 1974, right? Uh, 1974, yeah. right, yeah, 45 years ago. And that was happening to a lot of priests then, wasn't it? It was, yeah. In fact, uh, uh, mm. the majority of my classmates from the Marino College mm. as, as well as from the Albany Diocese have petitioned to be as what they— as, the canonical phrase is laicization in order uh, to be validly married in the Catholic Church. Well, you know, we could have a whole podcast on that, on that issue, and uh, I've certainly talked with my classmate, Bishop Hubbard, about... Uh, oh, he was your classmate? He, uh, we, 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 he was ordained in Rome, but the same year, in 1964. So uh, we consider ourselves classmates from the year of ordination, and 
I said, we're willing to serve, but uh, they're not quite ready to accept us back. Huh. Oh, so there's... I can t- they the, need us. <laughs> yeah, I, I see what you're saying, to recall the, the priests who left to get married. So um, maybe just one thought. Well, I'll tell you what, I better, um, you know, we, time is going by. You, so then you needed a job. Uh, what did, you worked at first, I believe. Uh, well, what is it? Where, where did you first get a job? Okay, my my first job uh, when I left the ministry was with the uh, as a machinist with the Glenville Gauge Company in Scotia, and then from there I was on a job campaign, and I became a medical social worker at Ellis Hospital. Then I returned briefly back to the ministry, and then. Uh, officially resigned in March of 1973. And uh, then following that, I worked, uh, I passed the test and took a job with the state of New York as a clerk with income tax. Then I passed the civil service test to become a correction counselor. And I was a correction counselor at the Great Meadow Correctional Facility in Comstock. I, I did my time, as the inmates would say, for three years, and then I was promoted to the commissioner's office in Albany. And in that role, I visited many prisons and monitored programs. I uh, took part in opening up two new facilities, training correction officers to be case managers. And then I, uh, uh, my, my condition kicked in. I, I became legally blind. And I got what what they call a 55B certification, which allowed me to then uh, uh, pursue other other uh, possibilities in employment. And uh, I was asked to be the district manager in the Albany office for the New York State mm. Commission for the Blind and Visually Handicapped. Mm. And and uh, I was with the commission for 16 years, and uh, I spent four years as district manager. And then I was promoted to the central office where I was chief of program services. Um, we had, I was just going to say, the primary program we had was vocational rehabilitation for people who were blind, legally blind, losing their sight. The hardest people to place in employment are people who are blind or visually impaired. Employers will say if they can't see, how can they do the job? Well, we brought in business people to show them we could do the job, mm-hmm. we can, we're capable. Mm-hmm. Technology has certainly been a uh, great asset for us in uh, functioning in the print world. Now, your blindness, was it caused by a trauma, by an accident, or was it some no, kind it was, of it was illness? A, uh, it was, it was a uh, condition called retinitis pigmentosa, and uh, uh, I could tell things were happening to me. Uh, as a matter of fact, I could. Uh, when I really became conscious of, of this situation, was in Korea, because you talk about darkness. Uh, that that really was uh, was dark. But, but uh, when I came home, I seemed to cope with it pretty good. But uh, then, in uh, as, as I got into my uh, middle forties, I said, uh, I think I I need to see the doctor about something here that's not quite right. And uh, when he examined me, he says, I, I don't know how to tell you. I said, I'm going to need bifocals. <laughs> he says, no, it's more than that. You have this condition. 
all retinitis pigmentosa, referred to as RP, and it leads to blindness. And uh, I was lucky. It, it didn't. It, it, it was slow moving. Uh, I got the job with the Commission for the Blind Visual Handicapped. I became acquainted with the Mass Ioneer program, and I went there and met Dr. Elliot Burson, who not too long ago passed away. And uh, we became good uh, good friends. And he said to me, by the time you're 60, you won't see. Hmm. Well, I, I got another 10 years out of that in my mid-70s. That's when it kicked in. Oh, really? You mean you could see some until you were in your 70s? I had, I had some, as they say, some functional vision. Okay. Yes. Now, I mentioned this to you in the past, uh, but this podcast is carried by the good folks at uh, RISE, WMHT's uh, radio service for the blind and visually uh, impaired. You served on the board at RISE for a time, didn't you? On the board of RISE, yes, I was. Radio Information Service. They do a great service, right? Yeah. And also, the fact that you had this long onset of uh, blindness. Um, yeah, I don't know. Is that better or worse? I suppose it's better because you had your sight for so many years, but you, you had something taken from you that you had come to rely on. Well, that, yeah, one of the first things that uh, you have to get used to is you, you can't drive anymore. And I, I pushed too long in driving, so I, I had to give that up. And so uh, you, you try to make the adjustments as, as best you can. As I say, the technology is great. Uh, in, in addition to RISE, Bob, there's a new device out called a, an iPal. And what it does, if I put the newspaper on the carriage, it will read the paper to me, okay? Mm. So uh, that way I can, uh, I can scan from one, one thing to another. And uh, I, here at home, I can go down and get the mail and put it on the iPal and, and uh, have it ready for Shirley to look at. So if, uh, if, the, if the envelope says, you may be a winner, well, <laughs> I, I can throw that one right out. Well, one thing that I found uh, personally rewarding is you said that on Saturdays, when my column comes out, Shirley reads you the column from the Daily Gazette. Oh yes, we look forward to that, Bob. Yes, we have our coffee in the morning, and there's there's uh, Bob Kozor, and all just about every time there's there's something. Oh yes, I, I remember that. Not too long ago, you had a column on the the uh, orphanage on Prospects and uh, Market Street. Yes, the, the with the Resurrection Sisters operated, and I used to go there and serve mass. The priest would come there once a week to. Uh, offer mass for the sisters, and uh, I, I was uh, chosen many times to accompany him to as his server. Mm. And do you and Shirley have children? No, no, okay. no. I, we, no, we don't. Right. But you and Shirley now live, uh, you told me, at the Glen Eddy facility in Niskayuna, and before that, you would live for some time in Niskayuna. Oh, sure. We, not, well, we lived on, on uh, Whitney Drive, which is off of... Uh, uh, Route 7, and uh, only a couple miles from Glen Eddy. And Glen Eddy is a retirement community. We've been here now six years. 
Yeah, and that, uh, that's when you and I got reacquainted a couple of years ago when you came and, and uh, spoke with us. Yeah. Well, it's a long time from when you were delivering papers on Pulaski Street. Yes, it is. <laughs> but, uh, and and quite, a, quite a life and a lot of uh, different things uh, happened to you. Uh, I don't know. What was the favorite part of your life? Well, I, a day at a time. <laughs> uh, the, uh, they tell us, those of us who uh, experience what we do, and, and it goes for everybody, uh, you play the cards you're dealt. And so uh, I think that uh, the Army certainly was uh, a, a terrific experience. And uh, being married is a wonderful experience. Uh, I have a wonderful wife and my dear wife, Shirley, and uh, we're journeying our life together by paths unknown, but we know the Lord will be there to, to help us on our way. Well, Richard Ratajak, I thank you very much for joining us, and you have a good day. And thank you for having me, Bob. You've been listening to The Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. <laughs>